everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Bourbon Showdown Podcast. My name's Jesse Jones, and on the episode today, we have Ariel Yan of Woodenville Whiskey. We want to thank her for being on the program. She is the brand ambassador for Woodenville. What is a brand ambassador? Well, I'm going to tell you, it's the best damn job in whiskey. You get to go out and spread the word to the masses of what good juice is, and that's what she does. She's going from town to town, well, pre-COVID town to town. Now she's going to tell us how she's doing it in the COVID era, and she spreads the word of good juice on the behalf of Woodenville. She also walks us through how Woodenville got started, how they make the juice that they make, and how they're taking over over the world one state at a time with that good product that they're putting out there. So we want to thank her for being on the program. We also want to thank Will Jones for providing the music that you're hearing in this episode. We couldn't do it without that sweet guitar lick at the beginning. So thank you, Will. If you guys are ever in Nashville and you see him on the marquee, stop in and watch that guy play guitar. It's insane. We also want to ask everybody that's listening right now, if you would please click subscribe, click like, leave us a comment, leave us a rating, do all of the social things that help us continue to put the Bourbon Showdown podcast on every week. We appreciate you guys for all the love and support so far. And guess what? We're gearing up for the season finale of season one. It's going to be amazing. We just locked it in. We just recorded it last week. I'm not going to tell you who it is right now, but soon enough, you're going to find out who the season finale guest is on the Bourbon Showdown podcast, and it's pretty damn cool. But you know what else is cool? Ariel Yan. As we get to the Woodenville episode, let's not waste any more time. It's going to get started right about now on the Bourbon Showdown podcast. Let's go, everybody. Let's go. Welcome, Ariel. It's very good to uh, have you on the show. Yes, wonderful to be here. Thank you, Jesse. Of course, my guest today is Ariel Yan. She is the brand ambassador for Woodenville Whiskey. Uh, what What is a brand ambassador exactly? Yes, a brand ambassador is the best of both worlds. A lot of business talk, but a lot of fun, you know, getting liquid to lips and events or tastings at liquor stores, spreading the story about Woodenville or any other brand, I guess, for different brand ambassadors and just really living and breathing uh, Woodenville. That's awesome. So it's your job to bring it to the people. Exactly. Very good. So what kind of uh, events do you usually uh, coordinate? Like what, what's your day-to-day look like? Well, pre-COVID, it was a lot of happy hours, you know, with flights and cocktails, maybe some pairing dinners throw in there, a few master classes at liquor stores or at different restaurants and bars. And now it's a lot of virtual events. So telling the story over Zoom or maybe Instagram Live and still doing tastings just all in the comfort of our own home. So the best job ever is what I'm hearing. You basically, you do for a living what we pay to do for recreation. Exactly. That is, (laughs) that is awesome. Uh, How did you get into that? That sounds like a good gig. I fell into it. I had been working for Kempton Hotels in Old Town Alexandria, met my husband. We decided to take a five-week road trip across the country, didn't know where we were going to end up, ended up in Seattle, and I started in the tasting room. So from the tasting room, they promoted me to be the first salesperson, and it's morphed into this national ambassador role. So I've seen 
what in Vogo from just in Washington to now in 24 markets across the country. It's been an incredible five years. That's awesome. Uh, all good journeys in whiskey from what I've seen so far are all organic. It seems like everybody that lands where they're supposed to land, they kind of find it when they're on some form of just who am I quest and then they land in whiskey and it just fits. Yes, it definitely fit. And especially being a Kentucky girl born and raised, I've always loved my bourbon whiskey. Perfect. So it was a- Alexandria, Kentucky? Alexandria, Virginia. So That's what I thought. Okay. To Northern Virginia to Seattle. <laughs> okay. Okay. So you've been all over the place. Uh, yes. The last time I was in Alexandria, I was actually, I got thrown out of the White House. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, it was, uh, I was staying with a buddy of mine, uh, LT Elliot. He's, he, uh, he lived there at the time and, uh, we, we were just, I hadn't seen him in a while. I'd come to visit. He still had to work that day. So I went and explored the city. It was right after nine 11 and I didn't know that they had closed the white house to tours. Oh no! And I just, yeah, I just get in line. I have no, they, they let me in. I don't, I don't think it's my fault what happens next because to be fair, they let me in. I got in line. <laughs> I showed them my ID. I didn't, I, I wasn't wearing like a trench coat with dark glasses. I did all of the things e- even nerdier than normal. They were like, can I see your ID? I was like, here you go. And then they let me in. Everybody starts doing the thing that they're there to do. And the next thing I know, I see like out of the corner of my eye, a dude in black glasses, give it like one of those. And then uh, they've got me up by the cuff of my shirt. Like, I, I felt like a cartoon character. They literally had me up like, what, what's your name and what are you doing here? And I'm like, I just wanted to see the Lincoln bedroom. And then, uh, honest to God, they DJ Jazzy Jeffed me right out of the White House, up by the... Oh, uh, my gosh. 100% true. They got me by, like, the bottom of the belt and just, like, heave-hoed me right out of the, out, out of the White House. That's wild. And the only thing my dad had to say about that entire story was, oh, you know, they got a file on you now, right? Like, you know, you're in the system. I was like, oh, (laughs) if you say so, dad. Uh, So you went from Alexandria to Washington uh, and, and then you just fell into the best job ever. That's awesome. Yes. Cannot complain about how all that happened. And so what does a normal event look like that you do? Like if you're going to be doing a whiskey tasting, is is it an educational event? Are you trying to uh, train a person's palate so that they can better appreciate your bourbon? Yes, I definitely would say it's educational, just getting our unique story across and how we do things a little differently. But in general, educate people on the laws of bourbon whiskey. Um, So what to expect in a bourbon profile based on, you know, that we have to be at least 51% corn and all these other things. And then I can talk about our mash bill and what they should taste with that versus what other mash bills can taste like. And the most important part, of course, is tasting the whiskey in any event. So a little education and then a lot of fun. Perfect. That sounds, that's exactly what I wanted to talk to you about today. So we're in the right place. (laughs) Perfect. So you've been there how long? This is my fifth year at the end of this month. Oh, wow. So you got there right when they were hitting their stride, like right around 2015 when the, when the awards started coming. Yes. So I came, I think two and a half months after our first five-year-old bourbon release And then the following year, we released our first batches of five-year-old rye. So I have 
seen it go from micro barreled whiskey, little eight gallon barrels to now full size five year old bourbon barrels. Oh, wow. I, I think a lot of people get confused or, or not, not confused. I don't think a lot of people know about the different sized barrels that people go through as they're perfecting their juice. Uh, could you explain what you just said a little bit in terms of why they were using smaller barrels and took it to bigger barrels? Yes, definitely. So Brett and Orlin really wanted to be able to control every aspect of our whiskey. So where the grain is coming from, what yeast strain, uh, what proof we're distilling it to, and of course the barrels, which is an important part because they say the majority of your flavor is coming from the barrel. Yes, you have to have great distillate, but you also want to have great barrels. And so we sold White Dog and Vodka first while we aged some whiskey in eight-gallon micro barrels. So there's more liquid to surface area ratio in there. And then we were also filling 53-gallon barrels at the same time. But it was, you know, maybe one 53-gallon barrel every couple of days while we tried to fill as many eight-gallon barrels because it only took about 20 months to age that whiskey. So you got a lot of wood contact. So it was very tannic, very dark in color. Um, definitely still tasted like great whiskey, just not as mellowed out because it didn't have as many season changes to go through where that whiskey's going to expand and contract in and out of the wood. Okay. And and what's the climate? Do you guys have extreme climates in Washington? Yes, there are many microclimates within Washington. So where the distillery is, where we do the milling of the grain, cooking, fermenting, distilling. It's all done in Woodinville, Washington, which is about 20 miles from downtown Seattle. But all of our whiskey is aged across the Cascade Mountains in central Washington, where there is a rain shadow. So it's all high desert. They only get about 10 inches of rain a year. But freezing cold winters and really hot summers, very similar to how the weather is in Kentucky. And so we age our whiskey over there so the whiskey can um, go through those temperature fluctuations to expand into the wood and then come out to go through that charcoal filter from the char level. But uh, it's much drier over there than it is in Kentucky. So I like to say we have greedier angels. They take about 5% more in that five-year period. So we lose 30% automatically out of our whiskey. Wow. That's crazy. And and so you go through the five years. I was talking to a distiller from Texas last week, and they, of course, have not multi, what do you call them, microclimates. They just have, you know, two extreme climates. And it was just so interesting to hear the differences between uh, the juice that comes from multiple micro seasons and then just super extreme seasons. Uh, yours being closer to Kentucky, do you think your juice is per, it, it has that uh, mouthfeel? Does it have that flavor? Or is it more extreme because you have more of those seasons? I would say it's more extreme because the climate itself is so different. I mean, aging in a desert environment, I would imagine is more similar to Texas, but then with the, you throw the freezing cold winters in there. And so I think that makes it a little more like Kentucky, but it definitely reminds me of a different whiskey. I mean, I can't say I'm the best at blind tasting things, but <laughs> I feel like people would pick up on it. That is just slightly different than Kentucky bourbons. Perfect. We'll have to try that sometime. Yes, for sure. The um, I, I I go back and forth. I feel like my blind tasting it can go. I, so many things come into play when you're doing a blind test. Like who knows? You might just be stopped up that day and everything tastes the same. You know, I think you've got to be almost prepare your 
palate before you do a blind testing like you do like a like a boxer would before a match you know you just got to have everything like at the top of its game yes i agree so you you're at woodenville and woodenville started in 2010 by orlin Sorensen and brett carlisle what what brought them to whiskey what were they doing before they got into uh, the distilling business Yes, um, they have an amazing story. It is a story of two best friends, went to high school together, college after Orlin became an airline pilot. Brett was in construction material sales, so clearly not the whiskey business, but loved drinking whiskey. So when they saw the laws changed in 2008, where you could legally distill in Washington for the first time since Prohibition, they were like, you know what? We do get together every week and drink some new whiskey. Maybe we should make some. And that's when the idea started put pen to paper, and two years later, we had our first distillation. So it was really just about always wanting to go into business together and then running a successful business, and then they figured their shared passion for drinking whiskey would create great whiskey. (laughs) I love that. You know how many guys have sat around and said, you know what we should do? We should totally open a whiskey distillery. Like like everybody's (laughs) had that drunken conversation at least eight times. And these guys woke up the next morning and were like, Hey, you remember that conversation we had last night? And like, yeah, and then they, they it actually happened. That yeah. you, that never happens. That's awesome to hear. And uh, he was a pilot, and he was in construction materials. Was it was it just one of those things where these jobs aren't bad, but at the end of the day, they're not exactly look back at your life and go, hooray. Exactly. They wanted to make something for themselves. Uh, They definitely talk about the entrepreneurial spirit and what they could do to put their mark on something. And they wanted to bring Washington whiskey to light, create what Washington whiskey could be, honoring the tradition of bourbon whiskey. Of course, most of it's made in Kentucky, even to this day. But how could they put a Washington spin on it to make the best product they could in the Northwest and be one of the best craft distilleries in general? Well, that's the beauty of the bourbon landscape right now. Uh, 10 years ago, you couldn't, well, 10 years ago, you could have, because you guys started in 2010. 15 years ago, you wouldn't (laughs) have been able to say that Colorado produces good juice. Washington produces good bourbon. Uh, Every uh, New York, New York, there's some amazing things coming out of New York right now. And and you wouldn't have been able to say that 15 years ago. Uh, What led to this boom, do you think? Do you think it is as clean cut as the states opening up some of their laws and removing some restrictions on who and who can't distill? I think it's twofold. I think the laws definitely helped. Obviously, it was legal now to make whiskey. I'm sure there was a lot of moonshining going on and still is, (laughs) even though it's not allowed. I know there's still those tiny stills (laughs) being sold around the country. But I also think it's The level of education, people started seeing all these mixology bars bring back Prohibition Air cocktails, and then people were asking more questions. Social media, you know, had a boom 15 years ago, so people can now share what they're drinking and ask questions and see what's going on. And so then it's just opened up this whole door of what bourbon whiskey can be, how the industry has grown, but then lifting all these restrictions in all these different states across the country. I mean, even 15 years ago, most of Kentucky was dry. And now at this point, there's only a few dry counties. So it's pretty crazy how just those laws have changed. Isn't that insane? Like five years ago, you could have gone and um, toured the Kentucky, uh, the Kentucky Trail and you wouldn't have been able to go get a shot of whiskey at a bar 
in in the town you just visited the distillery of? Yes, it is insane. I know that when I graduated high school, the county I lived in was not dry, or it was dry, excuse me. And then the first bar in the county was Applebee's. It was a happening place. (laughs) (laughs) We grew up in very similar places. Uh, I remember they got rid of the same thing probably about five years ago, and it was a big deal. Even five years ago, it still really made old people mad to think that you were going to be able to get a cocktail with your steak. I I, I don't... (laughs) I, maybe maybe the booze was just not that great when they were growing up. Maybe they they remembered it in that pre Maker Mark Maker's Mark era when everything had that burn to it, and, or, or maybe they just remembered people drinking to excess. I don't know. We never had to worry about that because by the time we got here, it was just delicious and wonderful. Yes, exactly. The um, I think the craft spirit, uh, the the cocktail boom definitely plays a part in it because everybody. Our generation specifically, um, I'm I'm a I'm a little more silver up top than you, but we still had the uh, college experience where we went through and probably had shots and everybody. It, it wasn't so much the um, vodka shots or vodka drinks when we were going through school. When I was, we were taking you know whiskey shots and and shots of that nature, and and the cocktails were all uh, brown liquor based. So the mature, the next step to there would be if you liked it with Coke and you liked it with ginger ale, maybe you try something better without the additives. And next thing you know, social media, you can't find it anywhere. You're hunting. I think the hunt has had a lot to do with it too. Cause people yeah. love not being able, uh, they, they, yeah, they love not being able to find something and then finding it. Yes, definitely. The hunt is a thing. And I mean, if you look at recreational hunting, that's definitely a big thing. And people travel all over the country for it now. And then this is a, a you know, I guess more animal friendly <laughs> way to get the same thrill of finding things that you may never find. Or if you look at certain liquors aren't even sold in other states. So then it can be, oh, I'm on a road trip. I'm going to pass through two states. Then maybe they have something I've never seen before. That's in, yeah, that's always the crazy part. Like North Carolina is a controlled state. So there are all sorts of things like, you know where I've never wanted to go? Ohio. It's never been a place where I'm like, you know where I'm heading today? Ohio. But then <laughs> you find out that they've got like all sorts of everything on the shelf always. And you're like, you know where? You know where I think we should make a pit stop? Ohio. <laughs> it, what, what is it about? Is it, a, is it an American thing or do you think it's just humans in general? We want what we can't have. I definitely think it's just a human thing. You always want what you can't have. Because there's so many things while people are looking for these unicorns. Uh, was talking to Conor O'Driscoll a couple weeks ago, and he, he's got a great mentality. Like as you're climbing uh, the steps of the shelf to get to that unicorn on the top shelf, don't ignore those golden steps that you're stepping on on the way up because you can find a lot of good stuff that that doesn't have to be hard to find like the stuff at the store is phenomenal you don't have to it doesn't have to be an old Fitzgerald 14 year for you to enjoy the drink you know what I mean exactly and price points too on those golden steps there's a lot of things that are hidden gems very affordable you might just pass by based on the price point and then it can be incredible whiskey I mean even like at Henry McKenna a couple of years ago they're bottled in bond one of my favorite whiskeys I could find it on the shelf for 27 dollars and now it's so hard to find 
Oh, yes. When it won that gold medal, that was like the worst day for the Henry McKenna fan. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm right there with you. That is my go-to pour. I, I have stockpiled it. I, I have treated Henry <laughs> McKenna like uh, the apocalypse is coming. I don't have rations of food, but if the world ends tomorrow, I have McKenna to get me through. Why am I saying this over a public forum? I have no Henry McKenna. If the yeah, world- you're going to start getting offers now. <laughs> <laughs> Something bad's going to happen and I'm just going to have people showing up at my door. Get him. He has the McKenna. <laughs> But yeah, that's been one of my go-tos for a while. And you're right. As soon as it won that gold medal, it went from, I think it was $28 in North Carolina to now it's 50 to 55. Yes, it is just wild. And I mean, that's still for what it is, is a great price. But if you know, oh yeah, get it before the award, it's wild. Well, what do you think's the next thing to blow up? Like, I, I, I've got my pick, but I want to hear what you think. What's the next thing that you're going to be like next year wishing you had stockpiled? Hmm. Ugh. I don't know. I feel like for what it is, Wild Turkey 101 is a super underrated whiskey. It's, I mean, super affordable as well. And you hear about Russell's and then the Wild Turkey, you know, decades and the bigger stuff that they're doing. But I think, you know, it's, something would blow up crazy like that. I could see wild Turkey one one being it. Wild Turkey one Oh one is a very good pick because people will try Russell's and they'll get hooked on Russell's and then they'll get tired of paying $60 a bottle for Russell's. And honestly, it's only a couple steps backwards. I don't, I don't mind uh one Oh one at all. I, I think it is a solid, uh, it's a, it's a good go-to. It was $20 the month of uh, November here. You couldn't find it anywhere. <laughs> well, people know then. <laughs> <laughs> North Carolinians, we also have a tendency of if it's on sale, we're probably going to buy it one way or the other. I think they put two and two together. Turkey, November, wild turkey, Thanksgiving. Let's make a go of it, you know? Genius. <laughs> That's a good pick. I, I, I'm interested to see like a year from now, wild turkey's going for like $40 and we're just sitting there like, yep, Ariel told us so. We, we called it. What's yours? <laughs> uh, mine has, it's, it's early times. I think early times bottled and bond is for yeah. $24, $22 to $24. The best fiscal pour that you can find. Sazerac knows it. They just bought it up. You'll probably see it on the shelf uh, next yeah, year. I can't find it anywhere now. <laughs> no, no. I saw it on an allocation list last week. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I was in South Carolina and they had a big thing of early times and it said one per customer. <laughs> Wild. That's the most 2020 whiskey thing I've ever heard. Only All in right. 2020 could early times bottled and bond be put on an allocation list. <laughs> So back to Orlin and Brett. So they've decided, uh, and, and now this is a thing a lot of people that have had that drunken midnight conversation are going to want to know. They have the talk. They decide they want to get into the whiskey business. You've already said that the first step was getting it cleared with the government and getting all the right paperwork filled out so that they could distill. But now you don't, you don't know. You're an airline pilot. You're, um, uh, you're uh, in construction. How do you get started in the whiskey business not knowing how to make whiskey. Yes. Yeah, so um, after they cashed in their 401ks, applied for all these small business loans, finally got approved for the 14th try, started buying equipment. So we got our fermenters in, we got our mill, and then they called Vindome 
and they have a two-year waiting list. So if you've just cashed in all your money, you're not going to wait for two years to get a still from Vindum. So they got one from the Coda company out of Stuttgart, Germany. But one valuable piece of information they got was Dave Pickerel's phone number. That's huge. Orlin was so excited. He goes, hi, Orlin Sorensen. We're in Woodenville, Washington. We want you to come help us distill. And he's like, slow down, man. I'm at the grocery store. And I was like, I'll call you back. Let me call you later. And Orlin didn't get a call back soon enough. So he was like, you know what? We have to make a splash. So bought a ticket to Chicago, to the um, Chicago Whiskey Fest, got the VIP ticket, stood in line. So as soon as the doors opened, he could run to the booth and be like, I'm Orlando Swanson. We're serious about you coming to Woodenville. And so Dave was like, I love it. Let's go. I guess I'm going to Woodenville, Washington. And so he came out and taught Brett and Orlin how to do everything right out of the gate. So there were no mistakes that they had to relearn or fix or anything like that. He actually blind tasted them on different mash bills. We did bourbons like Maker's Mark, high ray bourbons, your classic bourbons like Jim Beam to figure out the flavor profile Brett and Orlin wanted to go for. And they really liked that high rye mash bill. So that's what we ended up with. 72% corn, 22% rye and 6% malted barley. Oh, that sounds awesome. And even if nothing, even if it had not gone any further than that, the fact that they had him teaching them, it, it could have been, it could have ended that in two years. And that would have still been a win in terms of a life-changing experience. Life-changing. They say it was an invaluable experience to learn as much as they could from him. And he spent almost the full first year. We were one of his very first consulting projects, which was amazing. Uh, We did white dog tastings with Dave. So we sold these Groupon experiences. You could come learn what white dog whiskey was, how to mix it in cocktails, because, you know, most of us don't want to just sip on a glass of white dog whiskey meat. But um, it was a great way for us to make money early on, but then educate local consumers on what White Dog is. And that was right around the same time Maker's Mark and Buffalo Trace and George Dickel all were putting their White Dog whiskeys out. So then people had a local option of a White Dog, which is always helpful. That's awesome. So walk us through it. If anybody that doesn't know, White Dog Whiskey. Yes, White Dog Whiskey is the distillate straight off the still. So you get the flavors that you might expect from the corn and the rye, maybe a little bit of that malted barley. It is similar to moonshine, but more refined. You know, it's not made out of table sugar, just corn coming off of just any old still. It's coming off our copper pot still. And if it's uncut, ours is 140 proof. But when we were bottling it up, we were either doing 110 proof or 80 proof. And the 110 proof, we sold these little two liter barrels that you could age your own whiskey in. So you can kind of see how the process of aging whiskey takes. And those small, tiny barrels, it only takes about two to four months. It's very quick. Um, But you don't have those sweet caramel flavors. You might get a little fruit from the yeast that's in there, some sweetness from the corn, but it's not going to be like caramel and vanilla and all these wonderful things you get from the wood um, and the oak barrels. Okay, so it's the bare bones. Yes. And I'm interested. No color yet as well. It comes off clear as water. So you mentioned cocktails. What kind of cocktails can you make with a white dog? Because I've only ever seen people... uh, it's a very one to 10 drinking experience when I've, when I've witnessed and experienced it myself of drinking the white dog. 
Yes, um, you can make quite a few cocktails. A whiskey sour works well. It's almost, uh, you know, you're taking your lemon and all that, and you're going to get a, quite a bit more flavor than you would if you're using vodka. Vodka would be like a lemon drop, you know, very similar, but you're just using a different spirit. And then uh, there was one cocktail we had on our website. I can't remember the exact ratios, but it had cucumbers and apple cider in there. And it, so it was like this fresh, kind of herbaceous cocktail. And you would never guess I was white dog whiskey because it went down super easy with all the apple cider. So if you were to, um, I'm from the mountains of North Carolina. I, I've, I've played with moonshine in my day. If you were to take white dog and say, uh, fill a jar of cherries with white dog and then put that away for like four weeks, would it have the same effect as you would if you did it with moonshine and sugar? Yes, I think it would. Definitely. You might, depending on your ingredients for your white dog whiskey, it could taste a little different. <laughs> but I would imagine as soon as you put a little fruit and sugar, it magically makes a lot of things great. <laughs> Challenge accepted. <laughs> I'll let you know in four to six weeks how that goes. Perfect. Uh, I remember my father actually taught me how to make the blackberry moonshine. And I remember him, uh, he tells me, you're only going to want to do a sip. I'm like, what's that? And he goes, when it's done, you're only going to want to do a sip. I'm like, nah, you know, I'll be fine. Just a sip. And then sure enough, I call him. I'm like, I should have only had a sip. And he's like, I told you, I told you, you should have only had a sip. <laughs> Never. A sip. The older you get, the more you realize that your parents weren't telling you things because they were crazy or mean. They were telling you things because white dog will make you go blind. <laughs> Everything in moderation, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. Excess in moderation, words to live by. So now they've got David Pickerel on board. Uh, I love the story of just like going to a, you know how many people are going to hear this and then think, okay, the next whiskey convention, I'm kidnapping David Pickerel. <laughs> they get him on board and uh, they get going. And how was the first offering? Like what was the first thing out of the gate once you guys came to market? So within Washington, we self-distributed the first two years. It was a control state as well until 2012. So we sold White Dog and a vodka called Peabody Jones Vodka. It was made from soft white winter wheat, which is your typical cake flour. So a lot of vanilla character, a little butterscotch came through from the yeast. And so we like to say it was the whiskey drinkers vodka. We were getting people ready. And then 2012, we had our first micro-barreled whiskey come out. So it was about two years old, same distillate that we have now, that mash bill, but aged in a much smaller barrel. And it was 92 proof versus everything that we're bottling now, except for our cast strength whiskeys are at 90 proof. And so slightly higher proof, uh, but that was our first real age product where you could see what, you know, was hopefully coming down the line versus just white dog whiskey. Cause I mean, the magic happens in the barrel. Totally. And that magic must have been there because you guys went from just starting to turning heads pretty quickly. If your first offering was 2012 and you're already being named best whiskey of the year, best rye of the year, 2015 and 16, how did you get the word out that quickly? Was it, was it just that good? Was it social media? Like how did you spread the, spread the word? So at that point in 2015, we were Washington only and we had submitted our whiskeys into the American Distilling Institute for their competition. So blind tasting, we really didn't know what to expect. 
And then when we got those awards, it's, it's like, clearly we're doing something right here. We got to follow this track. And we also just had a great local following. So we really wanted to grow our own backyard, make sure, you know, we didn't have much whiskey at the beginning that we could feed the people who have supported us or, you know, get them whiskey, the people who have supported us from white dog and vodka into the micro barrels. And then now on our, the first day we released the five-year-old bourbon, we had over 500 people in line waiting to get this whiskey. So it's just a testament of, you know, the local support really helped grow it and get that word of mouth out. And we are in wine country in Washington. So there's a hundred winery tasting rooms that surround us. So it was also just natural, organic growth. People were going to the winery tasting and then they would see a distillery and be like, oh, we just had to stop in and see what this is all about. So then they could fly back home and talk about it. But as we've expanded to other states, 2018 was the first time we stepped foot outside of Washington into Northern California and Oregon. And uh, I think slowly growing the market this year, of course, we went to a lot. It was not a normal year by any means, though. So good thing that we went to quite a few markets. But the social media presence has been insane. Just people talking about whiskey, these different whiskey groups I've been a part of on Facebook and then just on Instagram as well. And people talking about their Wednesday whiskey, you know, whiskey Wednesday pours. And, you know, we have the W thankfully in our name. So a lot of people throw that in there as well. Any, anything you can get a hashtag started with is only going to help you. Yes, exactly. So then that's awesome. So you're, you're established, you're, you're, you're going people are behind you. It just sounds like a nice organic build. Like it doesn't sound like anything was hardcore market. Like it doesn't, you know how sometimes a product rollout will have like a corporate hand behind it and then it's just shoved down your throat. This sounds like the exact opposite of that. This sounds like a nice organic slow build with crowd support. And then it slowly reached out into the other markets and now it's just, uh, it's doing so well. Uh, I, in preparation for this, I just asked the whiskey drinkers on my street, who has Woodenville on their shelf. And out of 10 people, eight of them had Woodenville on the shelf. That's so incredible. Amazing. North Carolina, we just got it, I think, this summer. And Mm -hmm. whiskey folks, you know, if we see something new and, you know, you do your research, I I think the, uh, your non-freshman whiskey drinkers that are looking to expand their palates and try new things, they will do the research before they buy. And everything you were reading about Woodenville, my Southern just came out. Did you hear that? Reading everything you was reading. <laughs> uh, I lived in New York for 15 years. It's so funny that sometimes the Southern, I've been back now for five and it's just like tiptoeing at my door. Like uh, I'll wake up, I'll wake up one day and be like, I want black eyed peas. And it's just like, where'd that come from? I have no idea, but I do. I do. I want them and I want cornbread. It's amazing. I love it. Uh, but it's, uh, I have no clue where I'm going with that. I I just got off on a Southern tangent, (laughs) (laughs) but it's true. We, we do our research because we know you could sink $50 into a bad bottle and then you're stuck with a bad bottle. Yes. That's the worst feeling. You don't want buyer's remorse from a bottle of whiskey. No, because consistency is where you breed a, uh, a, a solid audience. If you give them one bad product, they might try you again, but, but your, your stock just fell in their eyes from, I can count on this product to, I don't know the last one I had. And that's not the category you want to be in. Not at all. 
And from what I've seen so far and from what you're telling me, it doesn't sound like you guys have to worry about that. No, thankfully not. So what do you guys have planned next? I know you've just started uh, barreling in the port finish barrels. Yes. So we have our port finished bourbon now. In the past, we've played around with finishes. We've done an Applewood Stave finished bourbon. Hopefully we can roll that out nationally at some point because Washington is known for apples. So there are quite a few apple trees out there. And then we just did a taste choose bottle event. So it's similar to choosing a single barrel, but you pick a bottle of it to take home. And that was at the tasting room, but we had a Chardonnay, Petite Syrah, and a Madeira finished bourbon barrel. And so they were just a fun, different expression, play around and see what works, a way to test out the waters before we buy a bunch of barrels and put a lot of whiskey up because we've only been filling about seven and a half barrels a day for the last six years. So that's not a lot of whiskey to play with if we're also trying to expand around the country. We do plan to go to two new markets next year as well, Minnesota and Nevada. Uh, So we'll have two more states to add to our list to bring us up to 26. And I think we also might have a harvest release coming out. We're trying to wait and see what happens with the pandemic so we can have a almost, um, I guess, an expansion party. We just added two more stills and four more fermenters. About six weeks ago, we got everything up and running again. So we, of course, haven't had tours and whatnot with all the stuff going on around the world, but hopefully um, as this vaccine gets rolled out and numbers start to go down, we can have a nice big party to celebrate making even more whiskey. That's super smart though. Use your downtime to optimize your facility and production. You saw the time that you weren't going to be able to have tours and you capitalized on it by creating stills. That's, that's basically, that's where Brett and Orlin are right now, right? They're overseeing the construction and finalization of that. Yes. So we've had the whole expansion at the distillery, but then also on the farm. So on the other side of the state, we've added a barreling and bottling facility and we're working on building four more rickhouses. So it's been two construction sites happening simultaneously. So a lot of back and forth over the mountain passes. Uh, Brett is leading our production team. We've hired quite a few more distillers to run all of those stills. And then, of course, there's a lot of legalities and paperwork when you're talking about whiskey. And, of course, the fire marshal has to be involved because it's a very dry area. And obviously, liquor is very flammable. So just a lot of minding your or dotting your I's and crossing your T's. Well, and that's something we sort of glossed over a moment ago. Uh, tell me about the farm. Well, first, let me take another step back. Tell me about the German still, because the still that you guys got, that's not that's not any run of the mill still. Like, tell me about the German. Uh, it's handcrafted. Yeah, so 6,000 pounds of hand-hammered copper. It's a pot and column still, so the best of both worlds. We don't have to do multiple distillations in just a pot still, but we can also have a very clean and easy run running it through the column still. So we take that distiller's beer. Each run gets us almost four barrels, and we distill it in the pot first, so that whole uh, fermented mash is in there. Alcohol is boiling off into the helmet. We're funneling that over to the column, and there's eight plates in there that almost act as a mini distillation, raises about five proof points to go to the next um, 
uh, plate. And then by the time it reaches the top, it's 70% alcohol or 140 proof, where we think our whiskey tastes the best. You get a lot of the grain flavor, not too much harsh alcohol. And then we run that through a condenser to take the hot vapor into a cool liquor. Uh, we have a second column on our first still that's only for our vodka distillation. And we're only making vodka about once a year now. It's a speakeasy item in the tasting room. We still make it for our loyal fans, but we're not distributing that anywhere. And so our two new stills are the same exact size, about 5,000 liters or 1,300 gallons, whatever that conversion works out to. But it's the pot in one column. So only one of the stills has two columns. Wow. That, and that, how did they know to go that route? Like, did David help them pick the still or, or was that just their own intuition and research? Um, I know that they linked up with the gentleman who owns Koval in Chicago. I believe he's the broker for the U.S. to get um, the German stills into. And if, you, if there's any pieces, um, I, I wouldn't know any part of the still right now off the top of my head, but any replacement parts that we need, he can get um, over from Germany. So that way we have a liaison to talk to, to get any needs that we have over. And so I think that they had already had the conversation of the still in works before Dave Pickerel came into the picture. He's an interesting guy. They're doing a lot of, uh, they're distilling grains that people wouldn't typically think go into whiskey. They're, Koval's doing a lot of interesting things right now. Yes, they're very innovative. Well, so are you guys. I mean, you've got your still, and then you also took the rest of your property and, and created your own farm, or was the farm already there? The farm was already there. So when we first started, we were about a mile down the road from where we are now, and our still was only a 1,000 liters. So we were only filling about a barrel a day to begin with. And... Most of the grain farmers that Brett and Orland got in touch with wanted to sell by the truckload to fill a silo. And at the time, the city of Woodinville said, no silos, we don't want it, it's not approved. So we had to find someone who would give us grain in smaller quantities. And that's when we got in touch with Arnie Omlin of the Omlin Family Farm, third generation family farmers. And he started selling us grain in one ton bags. And so we could easily move that around with a forklift. It wasn't like we had to figure out a way to store grain and get it moved over or anything like that. And uh, they started selling us grain. And then about six months later, they're like, what are these two guys in Western Washington doing with all of our grain? This is so random because it's not like we were in a big agricultural area. There's, there are farms, but no, you know, big cattle farming or anything like that. So they decided to come look and saw that we were quickly running out of space to store barrels. We were in a little warehouse area and barrels take up a lot of space. And obviously we're close to Seattle. So land was quite a bit more expensive. So they said, you know what? Why don't we build you a Rick house? I mean, I'm sure they called it something different because they weren't in the bourbon industry at that point. But they said if we were to ever go under, they would have a place to park their farm equipment. So that's really what happened. It doesn't even look like a Rick house from the outside. You know, just that corrugated metal, big doors. And that's where we started putting our barrels at first. So we now have three full Rick houses. We just finished our fourth with this new expansion. It looks much more appealing in the whiskey world. Um, they're all one story high as well. So we weren't doing the traditional six or seven story Rick houses like you have in Kentucky. And part of that is because the air is so dry. If we were to build too tall, the temperatures would just be so hot and so dry, we would lose too much of the whiskey. Right. Plus, if you go too high, you could, your fire risk rises as well. 
Yeah. So, okay, so that takes us to 2015, 2016, and then 2017, Hennessy comes a calling, and you guys get acquired by them. Uh, was that serendipitous? That seems like the next logical step because now you have global representation. Like that is the last thing you would need to really get and hit a global market. How did that come yes. about? They just saw you guys and, and said, wow, these guys are killing it. Let's do it. Yes, quite a few people came knocking. Um, Brett and Orlin weren't really interested in selling. You know, they were doing a great job, but started looking down the road. And they love that when Moa Hennessy came to them, they said, don't think of sales right now. Think of the legacy that you could leave. Think 100 years down the road and the story that we can tell. Two best friends that wanted to make some whiskey and do it the best way that they knew how. And so Brett and Orlin really resonated with that. It's about storytelling and leaving, you know, this beautiful brand and seeing how it can grow over a hundred years versus going national the next year. And so, I mean, if you look at the portfolio, there's Hennessy, um, you know, very prestigious brand, lots of history. And then the champagnes that are in their portfolio, hundreds of years old as well. And so they said, look at it in the same line as that and see how we're telling that story now and how we can tell your story down the road. And so that I think is very serendipitous that they were even looking at us to be their first American distillery is a huge honor. And with that, we've been able to follow their distribution footprint to these 24 markets around the U.S. And we hope in the next five or so years to start going international once we have a little bit more whiskey aged. It was a solid pairing, though. I mean, that was a smart move on your guys' part. Uh, how did I, it had to have required a lot of conversation on their part? Did they were they immediately on board? Were, were they? You said other people had come calling. Why hadn't they made the move prior? Or was this just these guys had the right story? They knew exactly how to take you guys to the next level. I think it was the story and the plan of action. You know, they wanted Brett and Orland to really run the brand and they don't know anything about American whiskey because they've been in scotch and cognac and other things. So they wanted us to really have control and ownership over the brand as well. So we really are autonomous. We are a part of their portfolio. They help us a lot. We have their resources and um, advice and guidelines that we can follow but they really just treated it as you're, you're still your brand. You're, you're the story um, to be a part of it like that. And I think that's what really resonated with Brett and Roland because they didn't really, I think, picture to sell at any point or especially that quickly, but it just the stars aligned at that exact moment. Well, that's perfect too, especially if you're, if they're autonomous and you get to continue making what you want to make only now you've got this amazing backer that just sounds like a win-win for everybody. And like you said, a hundred years down the road, they've got the pockets so that they can keep it on the shelf that long. Should, should something like this year happen again, you know? Exactly. So I always like to ask people with interesting jobs, especially you're all over the country. Uh, you're meeting all these different people. What's, what's the weirdest thing that's ever happened to you while, while you're leading a class or, or a tasting? Like what, what's the oddest thing that's happened in your travels in whiskey? There have been a lot of strange things. I mean, of course, if you drink a lot of whiskey, people say a lot of <laughs> strange things. It happens. Um, 
around the country has been amazing, just meeting people. And then when I go back to those cities, being able to see the same people again, I would say one of the weirdest things, and I guess it's not really that strange, but it's just how open the bourbon industry is. So I came to an influencer event in Louisville, Kentucky last summer, which is my hometown, met a ton of fabulous people, um, Dan McKee from Mictors and um Sherry and Mark from Old Carter Whiskey, people I've actually stayed connected to as well. You'd think oh, Sherry's great competition. You don't talk to anyone else, but it's just awesome how open arms everyone is. And then um, made awesome friendships through that. And I've actually moved back to Louisville, Kentucky since then. And the same influential people I met then are still, you know, friends at this day and time, which you can't make that up. And so I would say that's one of the weirdest things. And, you know, a lot of places you'll meet someone once and yeah, you might stay in touch, but not to be friends a year and a half later. Oh, totally. That's been my favorite part about the whiskey game so far is just that the community is a genuine community. Like you just said, in other industries, it's sort of a hello while I need you goodbye when I don't need you where everybody I've met so far, it's just been, Hey, how are you? Yeah. Next time you're coming through town, come have a drink with me. And it's genuine. Like they, they mean it. That's not just a thing that they say. That's a thing that the next time you're in town, stop by, I'll show you what we're doing. Let's taste something. Yes. That's good. It's, it's so funny that that's, that's, it is, it is odd. You're absolutely right. That is such a weird thing to this industry, but isn't it sort of sad that that's a weird thing and that it's not more like that in other industries? Yeah. Like the camaraderie that you find here is it shouldn't be weird. It should be the way most of these uh, industries operate. And I think that's why you get such consistent juice out of all these companies is because there isn't really secret uh, hiding from one another. It's, it's more, oh, you were trying to fix your rye. I came, I was thinking about it last night. Try this. Like you're always out to help one another. Yes. And I love that. Well, and that leads to my next question. If somebody was looking to get into this game, what would you recommend? Uh, if somebody is looking to change careers in their early 20s, not sure what they want to do, what would you advise the enthusiast looking to make a career in spirits, in craft whiskey, in national whiskey, whatever? Yes, I would say, I guess, take your passion. So maybe um, if you're more in the science behind it, the biochemistry that's happening between fermentation and distillation, you could go that route and, you know, work on the floor, really learn it from the bottom up, or say you love people, which is what I love. I mean, food and beverage and people are my favorite things. And so I can have all of that in my job. I got my degree in tourism and events management. So I would say I've done pretty well about staying on a similar track. Um, <laughs> You could always start and how I did it in the tasting room or by hosting tours at the different distilleries. And there are distilleries, I think, in every state now. So there should be a craft distillery close to home for anyone who is looking. But I would say go with what you find as your passion. I wouldn't last a long time in the distillery because I have to be around talking to people, but maybe you don't like talking to people. And so that's why it's a good option. <laughs> and I, I think a lot of people are open to um if maybe there's not a job opening yet, you could ask to stage or have an informational interview with someone. Come up with a list of 15 or 20 questions and ask that person for coffee or lunch or maybe a Zoom tasting since it is this time in our uh, worldly pandemic, I guess. But people are really willing to talk. And just like we talked about 
people in the beverage industry are fairly open. They may not tell you all the secrets, but they can definitely get you in touch with people who are looking. There's a lot of jobs within sales and marketing and hospitality. And again, on the back of house and the more science-driven portions, even the barrels and running rickhouses and all that kind of stuff. So you're very organized and you like to get your hands dirty. Running a rickhouse is no easy feat, making sure those bungs roll right side up when you're rolling so many barrels in at one time. That's a great answer. Don't just think about the part of it that you uh, that you that you like. Think about it. Drill it down all the way to what how it's produced, and there's probably something in there that you're good at. If if that's the path you're wanting to take, that's a smart answer. Thank you. So. I ask everybody this, the last question, uh, if you were putting together a Mount Rushmore of distillers, who would be on your Mount Rushmore? Oh, that's tricky. I would say if I'm going to go outside of Brett and Dave Pickerel, since that's who I have <laughs> most of my experience with, um, I think Marianne Eves um, I think she's a fantastic person and really has led women in the industry. Obviously, there are a lot of women in the industry, but, you know, to leave everything behind to start up a new, a brand new distillery, but then also what she's doing now and blending and all that, I think it's really fantastic. And she represents us women in the world very well. But I think it is awesome, too, that George Washington was a distiller and he's on Freshmore. <laughs> No, Marianne is a great pick. Uh, she's such a phenomenal person. She's so nice. And and on top of it, she's at the top of her game. I mean, she is, she's the future. She's the person to be on the lookout for as she is dominating. Yes, she came to the distillery once and I was super excited to meet her. So I made sure I was there the day that she was coming. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I really like what she's doing right now with her Eve's blind as well. I think that's a super smart idea. Yes. Super innovative and exciting and just educational in general for the whole whiskey consumers and uh, anyone in the industry. It, totally. Because uh, it, we were talking about it earlier when we were talking about the blind taste test. They're so, it's so easy to have your opinion um, swayed by others. So I think I just love the idea of taking the labels out of the picture and teaching people based off what they're tasting versus what they're looking at and what they're kind of reading they should be tasting. Cause it's amazing. As soon as you say, I taste blackberries, everybody's like, Oh, I get blackberries too. It, it's, it's, I, I love the simple approach, the organic, just tasting it and seeing what you're tasting. And I think that is a great segue into our next portion, uh, which is you have sent me some whiskey to sample. Would you do me a favor and walk me through some of these delicious bottles? Yes, definitely. Let's start with the straight bourbon whiskey. Our flagship product, whole reason Brett and Orland wanted to create Woodenville whiskey. Perfect. And so like I said earlier, this is 72% corn, 22% rye, and 6% malted barley. So this is age five years. We do hope to upage it, but I think right now our flagship will stay at that five-year mark. Distilled to 140 proof, barreled at 110 proof, so a little lower than the industry standard, and then bottled at 90 proof. 
And it is also, I love the fact that you guys picked the bottle that you picked. I think it's a, uh, it's, it's got its own personality, you know, like it's not the bottle that you see on the shelf everywhere. That is definitely, uh, your own, you put your own touch to it. And that's obvious. I think it's a great looking bottle. Thank you. Yes. Our designer, um, David Cole, we were his first spirits brandies worked with. Now he's gone on and done really fabulous things. Um, but we really wanted to showcase our five-year-old as a different whiskey as well. So our micro-barreled whiskeys that I talked about earlier were in these round, squattier um, bottles. And then to showcase five-year bourbon, full-size barrels, we put it in these nice decanter-style bottles. Oh. Cheers. Cheers. I, I, I poured this a moment ago so that it could open up for a second. Uh, it's got a wonderful nose. And now when people are trying for the first time, uh, are there any tricks along the way that you have learned that you could pass along to others? Uh, I know everybody does it their own way. How do you start when you're tasting? Yeah, so I usually, um, well, glassware is important. It doesn't matter what glass you drink out of it, but if you're really trying to get the aromatics off a whiskey, to have a tapered glass is better. So a larger bottom where it slowly tapers up to the top. I use a Glencairn glass because I have them at home, but a a wine glass would work similarly too if you didn't have a Glencairn glass at home. And then I like to nose it with my mouth closed. Okay, so you do it with the mouth closed. Mm -hmm. I do it both ways just to see if I get anything different. Mm -hmm. Um, When your mouth is open, you'll get a lot more of the aromatics. And if you stick your nose too far in the glass, you'll just get pure ethanol to burn, burn all your nose hairs, which is not the best. <laughs> and so if I were tasting whiskey side by side, I usually go through and nose all of them before I were to taste anything. And then I take a first sip. If it's your first sip of a spirit that day, never judge it. It's always going to shock your taste buds. They're going to be like, what the heck is going on? This high proof spirit. So the second sip, you should be able to get a lot more flavors that you're expecting out of a whiskey or any other spirit in general the second sip always tells a better story well i love all the sips so uh (laughs) salute the first sip's not bad i don't know what you're talking about that first sip was (laughs) pretty great it was pretty great my first sip of the day as well I almost cheated. I almost cheated while we were talking because I forgot my water today. And I was like, I, I can't, I, I, I can't say it's, the, I got called out on it a few weeks ago. I tried to do that. And uh, Lisa at Widow Jane, she's like, that bottle doesn't look like it was just open. I was like, yeah, okay. You got me. You got me. <laughs> Uh, I, I think uh, you were speaking about Marianne. I think you can't have that conversation without including Lisa as well from Widow Jane. I, I, I love that there is, and uh, Old Elk also, They there's like a whole generation of super strong women taking mm-hmm. over the bourbon industry right now. I think it's, uh, yes. it's awesome, the juice that is being produced. It is awesome. Mm, I like the finish of the first sip. Oh, did you go in for number two? I did. I did. All right. Let me see what I got here. <laughs> I mean, if I only had one style of whiskey for the rest of my life, it would definitely be bourbon. You know, rye is great. Scotch is great. But bourbon has my heart. Mm. I just love it. So they're, in general, most of them are very full bodied and it lingers for quite a while with that lower distillation proof point and 
I, I, the palette is good. I really like the palette, but the finish, the finish is where this is really just capturing my imagination. Like you're getting like a solid, like the dry fruit and, and it's almost a nutty finish. Mm-hmm. And the way that it really works with your, uh, the mouthfeel is, is pretty great. And that's not to take anything away from the palate. The palate is also, it's, it's a solid, solid bourbon. Good, good job to everybody involved. This is, this is super tasty. Thank you. Yes. And we got our biggest award this year to date, 2020 best straight bourbon whiskey at the San Francisco world spirits competition. So across all the other bourbons with no age statements entered into that category, we beat them all out, which is a huge honor considering uh, we are a Washington state bourbon. Totally. I read that the other day when I was preparing for this. Uh, kudos. That is phenomenal. So now you guys are, uh, of the 10 years that you've been open, you've been voted best whiskey three of those years. I mean, that's, that's kind of insane. Insane. I hate rushing whiskey. So tell me, what are you doing for the Christmas <laughs> holiday while I, while I continue drinking this fine spirit? Well, I'm, we're going to be doing a friend's holiday, which is nice. My best friend and her husband are going to come down. She actually married my husband's roommate, so it's perfect. They're friends and we're friends. And she's celebrating her 30th birthday right before. So it's really more of a birthday turned into Christmas celebration. Oh, that's, that's great. So is it, is it COVID-related that you're doing the friend's Christmas or just this is a great year for a friend's Christmas? Uh, we've actually done most of our Christmases with friends because we've been out on the West Coast and all of our families have been on the East Coast, Kentucky, mm -hmm. North Carolina, and Florida and Virginia. And so we've done friends holidays, which is amazing. We do want to see family, but with everything COVID related, we decided to stay away from elderly grandparents. We have seen our parents through some of this Um my husband and I actually got COVID last month. So oh, we're no. in that immunity period that everyone's <laughs> talking about with the antibodies. But Well, and we can cut this out if you want to, but what, what, how did that go? How, how did you, how did you find out? How did you react? How did you get better? I, I, yes. it's a crazy thing. It's so many people out here that only know about what they've, heard secondhand or they've heard from uh, extreme version of one new site or another. What, what was your yes. experience like with it? And you don't have to talk about it if you don't want to. I just, I, you're the first person. No, I've, it's uh, totally fine. Um, so uh, my husband and I were actually going out to the distillery because we moved back to Kentucky in March. So right in the height of the pandemic, drove across the country when everything was closed. It was very crazy. We would go hours, you know, through Montana and Wyoming and the Dakotas and never see a car. So that was pretty freaky. So our first trip out was going to be this trip. But out of precaution, we were like, you know what, we should probably take a test just to make sure. Uh, I had traveled a little for work and of course numbers been here in Louisville. So we just wanted to make sure we weren't going to bring it to anyone at the distillery and no symptoms, nothing tested positive. And it was a shock because we didn't feel bad. It was so crazy. And then the symptoms set in about two days later, fatigue was the worst that we had. It was in trouble, not really trouble, but no 
motivation to walk the dog around the block. So, you right. know, I feel fine. I was like, why are you being so lazy? Come on. I just want to go for a long walk. <laughs> and we live in an apartment. So it wasn't like we had a yard to let the dog out into. Uh, we did lose uh, quite a bit of our smell and taste. It wasn't fully. So if I poured hot sauce or crushed pepper or a lot of salt on things, I could taste it for a few seconds, but it would go away very quickly. Really? I, so that's real. That's losing. Yes, it was real. Uh, so whiskey tasted just like hot gasoline for a solid Oh, you week. poor thing. No, Fire no, no, water, no. I just stopped drinking it because I was like, it's painful. I don't even want to try because you're just getting the ethanol at that point. So none of the great flavors of whiskey, just pure alcohol. That's uh, awful. I came back after a week, though. I've still heard stories. My sister-in-law had it right before us, and she still doesn't have her smell and taste back. Really? Well, um, to put everybody listening at rest, I tasted a beautiful peanut butter at the end of that first bottle. (laughs) (laughs) So that's, that's that's something we can all do. Drink your whiskey, take your medicine. And as long as you can taste what you're drinking and it doesn't uh, come across as pure ethanol, uh, actually we shouldn't tell people that there's going to be people that don't want to go to the doctor because they can still taste their whiskey. Jesse said I was fine. Don't don't quote me. I'm not one to be quoted. There is no degree behind this voice. I was an art major. <laughs> I like to think whiskey is medicinal. <laughs> I, I do actually. I do think it's medicinal. It's uh, if you've ever any, you know, it's not going to like, if you've got to go to the doctor, you've got to go to the doctor. But if you've got like mild aches or maladies, I think whiskey could definitely be, be treated as it used to be as a kind of cure-all. Yeah. See, what is it about saying stuff like that, that you immediately sound crazy? Like in my head, in my head, I'm like, don't call it a cure-all. Don't call it a cure-all. Then boom, I said cure-all. And now I'm like, yep, yep. Somebody's going to Facebook me. Somebody's going to IM me saying, you know what? My sister broke her arm and drank whiskey because you told her it was a cure-all. Like, well, if you break your arm, go to the damn hospital. (laughs) Just drink whiskey till you get there and you won't know that your arm's broken as bad as it is. Yeah. So... Where are we going? Uh, where are we going next? I think we should go to the port cask finished bourbon and then we'll finish with the highest proof. I assumed that's what you were going to say because uh, that is what I did. <laughs> I, 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 didn't, I didn't pour as much this go around so that I can still, um, I can still function after this interview. That's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> um, so slightly more amber color. Yes, definitely gets a lot darker in the time that ages in the port finish or the port barrels. So we're typically aging our bourbon whiskey. So after five years in the American Oak, we're taking it out and putting it into port wine casks for an additional three to six months. In the summertime, it really only takes about three months to get that infusion of flavor. But right now, if we were to fill them in freezing cold temperature, it's going to take quite a bit longer, closer to that six month mark to get the infusion of flavor from the port barrels, pulling out the flavors, the dried candied fruit. Obviously the color definitely is appealing. If you're looking for a port finished whiskey, it's nice and dark compared to the regular bourbon. It is also 90 proof, just like the regular bourbon whiskey. And distiller.com last year on a list of top 10 with port finished whiskeys from around the world. So they had Scotch whiskeys on there, other American whiskeys. I believe a Taiwanese whiskey was on there. Um, so literally whiskeys from all over the world, we were number three on the list to try out, which is pretty awesome. 
So initially we were trying to get all Washington port barrels. It's not true port, it's more dessert wine because it wasn't made in Portugal. But Washington's not known for its port. We started <laughs> exhausting those resources and now are getting Portuguese port barrels shipped over and then we fill them. I love the nose. What I, I'm getting the sweet, but what what I normally don't ask, but tell me what what exactly am I getting here? Because I can't put my finger on it. I'm getting quite a bit of baking spices right now. Almost like um like a fruit cake. Uh, there's a lot of fruit coming through, but then I get like a hint of cardamom or clove on the back end. Clove. Clove, that's what I, okay, that was the word I couldn't put my brain around right there. And I'm still getting some of the nutty. Yes. Which, by the way, I still, the, I, I've still got the finish of that last sip of the, uh, of the straight whiskey. That, that, I love that finish. I do too. I like to say the finishes like creme brulee, you know, when you take a bite of creme brulee and it just lingers on your palate for so long. Oh, that's a solid, that, I'm stealing that. That is a great way to explain that. <laughs> That's much better than my peanut butter. <laughs> peanut butter is great too. And that definitely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, Salud. Salud. Sorry. I, I cheated. Mm -mm. It's sweeter. It's definitely sweeter. Mm -hmm. But it tastes like a heightened version of the first one. Like it mm -hmm. tastes like it totally. It's a complimentary pour. Uh, super smooth and rich like it's uh uh the baking spice comes through more on the palate than it did in the nose mm -hmm. it's it's got a different finish can i say that i like the finish better on the first one yeah i think that's totally allowed i mean i can tell you my favorite after we've tasted all three but i'll have to ask yours first <laughs> Totally. I, I go through, um, I go through phases. I'm super interested to try the high octane just because I'm going through a spicy period right now. I, I think mm -hmm. it has to do with winter. Uh, every time it gets cold, I just love the heat and the spice that comes with some of your hundred plus bottles. Yeah. So this is super interesting though. Like it actually, the finish, it's got two finishes. You've got your immediate finish where it sort of coats the side of your tongue and it's very, not very sweet, but there's a sweeter finish. And then there's mm -hmm. like an, an after finish. Like two, what, what's it been like two minutes since we had a sip? Something like I, that. And that's a good finish. If it can come, if it can mm -hmm. boomerang and you get a different note at the end of the finish than you did when it started, that's actually, that's, I'm a little conflicted now. Uh, I, I was hands down. <laughs> well, no, this after the, 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 the second finish has been, maybe it's the port, maybe it's that sweetness, but the second finish has been pretty awesome. All right, people, you just got to go buy both of them. I guess. If you're listening at home, you now just got to go buy the port and the, and the straight whiskey. I was trying to save you some money. That's what I was trying to do. Just tell you to go get one. But no, now, unfortunately, you got to go buy two bottles of delicious whiskey. We're getting ready to try the third one. So I hope you've saved because you might be going to get three. <laughs> and I um, just imagine, you know, it's cooler out now. We might have snow in the forecast soon. And the port finish is just begging for a fireplace with, you know, snow outside. But that's just oh. what I imagine drink it <laughs> fireplace i definitely see that like uh 
just as cold. Actually, hot tub. I know that is the uh, the most American thing you could possibly say, but cold outside <laughs> in a hot tub, drinking a port finished. That almost sounds like the beginning of a puzzle, the beginning of a word problem. <laughs> if you're drinking. <laughs> if you're drinking a 92 proof whiskey in 42 degree weather and the water temperature is 100 degrees, how soon will it be before your family finds you passed out in the hot tub? All right. Now for the for the big boy, I am going to open him now. I, I wanted to try this guy straight up off of the like off the off the top i i know that is not the uh recommended way to try something that is cask strength uh tell people at home if you would what would you recommend when you are trying something cask strength would you open it would you let it sit for a little bit first let it oxen uh, let the oxygen get in i feel like you're good at experiment too maybe do two pours side by side oh there Don't you go open one about a half hour before and then pour one right when you're going to taste and see the difference. And it definitely does. I mean, once oxygen mixes with the whiskey, it's going to oxidize a little bit in the glass, not drastically by any means. And it shouldn't make the whiskey taste bad. You know, obviously too much oxygen in wine, if it's been open for too many days, all that can have some not so great flavors, but whiskey should be fine for the most part. And then I always recommend trying the whiskey neat as is first. Yes, it may be high proof. Um, ours is coming out around the 120 proof mark most Ooh. of the time out of the barrels. And if it's too hot for your palate, then just add a little water or maybe an ice cube. But I would suggest room temperature water if your whiskey's room temperature. Um, it's going to dilute it. So you'll bring down some of the heat from the alcohol, but you'll bring out different aromatics. At every proof point, it might smell and taste just slightly different than other proof points. Um, but ice can chill it very quickly and it can cause you or cause it to mute some flavors. So think about wine that's been too cold or maybe a beer that's been too cold. Sometimes that's a good thing to mute flavors. Maybe it's not the nicest of things that you're drinking, but if you've spent quite a bit of money on a good bottle, I'm sure you want to taste as much of it as you can. Ice house, drink it cold. PBR. Mm, maybe <laughs> take it down a little bit. Drink it, drink it where you want to. I just made ice, the ice house people mad. Uh, I, <laughs> The little details are what I love uh, about you guys. Like just the, look at the top of the lid there. That's, that's gorgeous. Just little things <laughs> like you. that. And now my favorite part of any bottle, that popping of the top. <laughs> All right. So this guy, I know this is, um, he's just open. So I'm going to get a lot of alcohol on, or a lot of ethanol on this first, on this first one, but that's okay because we can go in for a second. <laughs> yeah. So the cast drink bourbon that you have is distillery only. We always sell a cast drink version there, but we've started a single barrel program around the country. And so our single barrels are all cast strength as well. But of course it's that one single barrel and all of our cast strength and single barrels are non-chill filtered. So it's literally going to be the purest form of whiskey 
you can oh, get. Okay. So I already, I mean, I don't even have to try this. I already know from my palate what my favorite's going to be. And did you just <laughs> tell me that I've got something nobody else has? Is that what you just told yes, me? Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. The distillery. <laughs> I'm sorry, everybody. Uh, you now have to figure out a way to get to Washington and wait for them to open the tours back up because I can already tell you this is going to be amazing and that you're going to want some of this. So this, uh, this little uh, conversation that people are listening to, it's getting pricey for them. We're, we're now booking them tickets cross country to Washington. Oh, it smells awesome, though. So not, this one has not been charcoal filtered. No, we um, take any of the, you know, we'll run it through a filter paper to take any big bits of char out. Right. But it has not been till filtered through the charcoal paper or charcoal and, filters. And, and you charcoal filter it to, of course, get impurities out, but the charcoal does something specific where it like kind of merges or congeals the impurities together. Is, is that right? Yes. So um, there's a lot of oils in the oak. Um, if you were to add water to this right now, you could kind of see it dancing across the glass almost. And so it's taking out some of um, the impurities will stick to that oil. So it makes it slightly less viscous. I mean, to the normal palate, I, I don't think most people would notice it. It doesn't do a huge flavor change by any means. It smells phenomenal. Uh, I, again, I'm biased. I like the, uh, higher octane juice right now, but the smell is just, it's, it's balanced yet. It's obviously strong. Like it doesn't have an over, it doesn't have a knockout aroma. Like it's not going to put you on your ass, but it definitely has enough to let you know that it's there. I, I really yeah. like, I like the way this one's starting. Mm. Right. Cheers. Cheers. What is this? 122 proof? Yours might be different than mine. This bottle I've had. 121.6? Yeah, so mine's 120.86. So barely close. But Ariel, this does not drink like a 121.6. This is way too smooth. (laughs) It's very smooth. Oh my God. It just, it's, it's everything... It's everything that I liked about the first bottle that we tasted, only it's kicked up to 11. And what is that on the finish? There is a, the hard part about trying to figure out how whiskey tastes uh, in an audio medium is if anybody listens to this, they're going to think that the, uh, their internet has frozen where it's really just me pontificating on if that is or isn't hazelnut that I'm tasting. Oh, I love it. I love it. There is a a full-bodied oak flavor at the end of it. You're definitely, you're getting your fruits, you're getting your spice, you're getting your, I didn't get as much clove out of this one. I got more of the nutty that I had on the first one, only it's amplified, of course, by the, uh, by the, by the proof. I could see this being like a, a, a go-to daily sipper easily. Mm-hmm. But it's deceptive. Something tells me you need to be a one and done with this guy unless you're ready for it. Yes, maybe two. Mm-hmm. But to the third, you're going to be feeling very good. <laughs> <laughs> All of a sudden, uh, you're face down in a hot tub. <laughs> 
We've done some damage in this episode. We, we've broken people's arms. We've put them face down in a hot tub. It, it's, there's going to be repercussions. Uh, you ask me my favorite of the three. Both of the prior offerings have been solid, uh, very tasty. Uh, I like that the port was able to bring something different to it than I was expecting. Uh, a very interesting flavor profile. Uh, but my favorites have been... Uh, definitely the cask strengths. Yes. I mean, just super large mouthfeel lingers for a long time. You get the sweet and the spicy. I have to say, I know you're not supposed to pick favorites. It's like picking a favorite child, but the straight bourbon was getting 90 proof. And the reasoning for that is because you can have multiple of them in a night. Yes. Yes. <laughs> no, thank you. Too many of these. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for actually picking one. I ask people all the time, what's their favorite? And they're like, I like all of them. I'm like, yeah, I like all of them too. But my favorite is, so th <laughs> thank you. I, I agree that the for the longevity of the night, I could see the 90 proof being a great, maybe you mix and match. Maybe you have one of the cask strength at the beginning of the night to get your night started. And then so that you don't end up face down in a hot tub, you switch over to the 90 proof so that you can keep your night going. Yes, exactly. And I think the port is a perfect dessert pour. So that is what I think of it. And that's why, you know, you don't want to eat too much dessert, but you want to be able to enjoy it. And so have one nice pour of port, but yeah. then switch back to the bourbon. <laughs> that is the perfect way to describe the port. I, I've been trying to wrap my head around because it's it's very good, but I, I couldn't fit, figure out where it could fit into my daily day, where the other two, I could see that being a end of day cocktail, like an end of day on the rocks, end of day, multiple uses, but the port, you're absolutely right. If you had a big piece of chocolate cake and then that yes. port barrel finished, oh man. Okay. I guess I know what I'm doing later. I've got to figure out <laughs> there's, I've, there's multiple problems with this plan, Ariel. I, I don't know how to make chocolate cake, so there's going to be a problem. <laughs> I might just skip the chocolate cake and just have it after I eat dinner regardless. Yes, even <laughs> easier. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. I, I have one question that I really I, I wanted to ask you before we go. Woodenville is now on the shelf in so many new locations. It, it can be daunting to a whiskey consumer uh, when they're in the liquor store and they're seeing something that they may have never seen before. Walk what would be a good way for somebody to when they're at the wall and they can't make their mind up, what, what advice would you give them uh, uh, to broaden their palates and broaden their whiskey horizons, but, but do it in a, but doing it in a smart way. I would say definitely do a little research before and maybe pick out different types. So say you're going to go in and get three bottles. I would maybe look at getting a weeded bourbon and a rye bourbon so you can see the different flavoring grains and how that affects the whiskey. So classic Maker's Mark, great weeded bourbon. Um, if you have Wilderness Trail in your state, they're making some great craft weeded bourbons. Then um, high rye bourbon, of course, Woodenville, but then Bullet is, you know, an international company that has high rye, Woodford Reserve, also high rye. So start with these classic bourbons style-wise and then 
from there branch out, maybe get a single barrel. So you can try an expression that is just that barrel. A lot of times those are higher proof as well. So you're going to get the purest form, but I would definitely do a little research on uh, mash bills first. So do weeded versus rye. Maybe the second time you go in, you get from different houses. So like Sazerac or Heaven Hill. And then of course it could be their bare, you know, their not necessarily bottom shelf stuff, but their flagship stuff, you know, that's affordable. Um, you can try different flavor profiles and say, if you like that, start buying higher end things within that same portfolio. So maybe starting with um, the Heaven Hill bottles and bond, if you like that going to. Um, I do. I do like that. Craig and their special finishes and all that. I mean, there's, there's so much um, and obviously it can get very expensive very quick, but don't think price is the only indicator of quality. No, completely agree. And I really like the way your brain works. Like so many of your answers have been thoughtful and, and very focused on like, that's a sound strategy. Don't go buy something because the label looks cool. Look at the, break it down by what it is. Go to the known name of that kind of bourbon in the industry and start there. Start with somebody that's obviously got it figured out. And then after you taste that and you have an idea of what the standard is, then branch out and then go to some of the newer, maybe lesser known craft names so that you can have your ground floor put in before you try to go to the second floor. Yes, definitely. That is a, that is a solid logic. And, uh, that might be the best answer I've gotten to that question. Cause I always ask that question. That's a very good answer. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> so I have taken up uh, more of your time than we had uh, counted on taking up. Uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on today and walking us through the Woodenville story. Uh, it's truly amazing what the guys have done, Orlin and Brett, since the creation of Woodenville. And just congratulations on the success. I mean, you guys have been killing it and you've only been at it for a decade. That's impressive. <laughs> it has been an impressive year. And thank you so much for your time and willing to hear about our story. And it's exciting to be able to be in new states like North Carolina and I get to meet people like you. Well, perfect. How about the next time when COVID's over, if uh, they send you North Carolina away, let me know and we can definitely get a, a, a good group of people together to experience this. Uh, this right here is also what I'm going to be bragging about. So if you do come to North Carolina, you got to bring at least one bottle of this because this is what I'm going to tell people to be on the lookout perfect. for. Perfect. <laughs> it's a done deal. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Ariel. Thank you. There you have it, guys. That's this week's episode of the Bourbon Showdown podcast. We want to thank our guest, Ariel Yan from Woodenville, for being on the program. She really was just so fun to talk to and informative. Like, who knew that the brand ambassador is the job that you want? I mean, that is the best job in whiskey. You don't have to worry about, like, being at the still and making sure that it happens the way it's supposed to. You don't have to worry about finding the capital to keep the company open. You have literally the coolest job where you take the juice once it's made and send it out to the masses and go drink this it's good I promise and that's exactly what she does and she's damn good at it so we thank her for her time we thank her for her answers I think uh, one of the best answers I've heard doing this so far is when I asked her how 
if you're staring at the wall in the liquor store, how do you pick what you're going to drink next? And I thought that answer was just perfect. Just how she measured her answer and gave you like step-by-step tools to use when you're at the liquor store next. So thank you, Ariel, for being on the show. You were a phenomenal guest. And uh, thank you guys for listening. That's this week's episode. If you would, please tune back in next week. We've got more goodness. We have Tim from Chattanooga Whiskey on the show next week. And let me tell you guys, strap in, Sonny Jim, because we've got a hell of a ride for you. Me and Tim, we talk about everything under the sun we get into a musical debate of the ages baby so tune in for that it's gonna be a damn good show and for right now if you would please come on back next week hit subscribe on itunes hit like on instagram do all those things i always ask you to do go listen to will jones go have some fun raise a glass and kick some ass my name is jesse jones and this is the bourbon showdown podcast talk to you next week everybody goodbye goodbye